I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome back to Vet Sessions. I'm Dr. Shannon Gallen, and I'll be your host this evening. And I am here with Dr. Matt Cornia, who is an internal medicine resident at the main OVC at Ontario Veterinary College. Welcome, Matt. Hi there. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Oh, my pleasure. So I thought I would ask you um, just kind of to tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of what you do um, as an internal uh, medicine resident and also a little bit about how you got there. Sure, yeah. Um, I guess I had a little bit of a non-traditional path to get where I am now. Um, I graduated from the OVC in 2014. Um, was one of uh, Shannon's uh, first uh, primary <laughs> healthcare center classes there. I can't believe it was that long ago. Yeah, right? I think yeah. we were the first class to go all the way through the four-year period there. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, went into feline specialty practice um, for a uh, six-year period. I did some ER on the side, but but most of my life was, was cats. Um, and then after about six years, moved back uh, into a residency um, in internal medicine at the uh, OVC. And so in internal medicine, we deal with... Um, basically anything that involves an internal organ that isn't the heart of the brain. And so um, <laughs> GI tract, hematology, nephrology, respirology, endocrinology, I'm sure I'm missing ologies, but yeah, basically anything that isn't heart or brain or yeah. cancer, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I, you do actually see some cancer, I imagine. Yeah, we, but then we, you send we diagnose them, them and then kind of yeah. send them elsewhere for the, the chemo. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And how are you enjoying your residency so good. far? Good. It was a really good move for me. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, a great program and I'm uh, enjoying it here for sure. Okay, that is awesome. And I know that you've had like a, a strong interest in cats ever since you were one of my students. I remember that for sure. <laughs> yep, yep, that's um, true. Yeah, so I was wondering what, what you love so much about working with cats. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's like a personal and a professional aspect. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been more of a cat person. Like I grew up with cats and not dogs. And so just, you know, kind of personally relate to them more. But I think, you know, cat medicine has a lot of intricacies to it that are, are different. And, you know, some may say better, some may say worse than, than dog medicine. But I think, you know, cat medicine is a lot more problem solving, right? You know, dog medicine, they kind of walk up to you a lot more and tell you what's wrong. And it's kind of, you know, I have a heart murmur because I have heart disease or I'm limping because my legs broken whereas cats you know it's always a bit of a mystery right like every sick cat looks the same initially and yes. it's just a little bit more challenge a little bit more work up I think which you know is a, a lot more interesting that's very very true yep yep they just have that unhappy cat look about them yeah I totally agree they mm -hmm. definitely show us a lot less than our dog patients do yeah which I think can be good and bad but it's yeah. um, you know makes for a bit more of a challenge and uh, you know a little bit more interesting medicine sometimes that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I love cats as well, as you know. So, um, okay, so let's jump into our topic. Today, we thought we'd talk about feline upper respiratory disease, uh, just because I find that we see, of course, lots of cats with feline upper respiratory uh, as general practitioners. And I find that we get lots of questions from the students. Sure. Um, and they've often seen a lot of different ways of managing it um, on their externships and out in general practice. So I thought we could kind of touch on a few different things. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, a lot of the reason for different ways of managing it is that, you know, we're grouping it as though it's one condition, but, yeah. you know, really this is kind of like saying a cold or a flu or things like that, you know, whereas if you, me, and someone else have a cold, we may have radically different disease processes going on in each of us. And I think the same is true with cats where we call that, you know, upper respiratory mm -hmm. disease, but, you know, that's, that's really more of a, a syndrome than a specific condition. 
Yeah, that's very true. And of course, every cat is different from every other cat. For sure. So that's true too. Okay, so um, so as far as clinical signs go, what do you mostly see? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's the kind of general spectrum of, of upper respiratory signs in terms of sneezing, nasal discharge, you know, congestion and that kind of tracheal rasping, um, runny eyes. And then I guess depending on, you know, how far you want to extend the upper respiratory definition, you know, we can see the oral ulcerations of Khaleesi you know, mm-hmm. often a fever, um, you know, those types of issues as well. Yeah, for sure. And as you see, there's a spectrum. Every cat does a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the difficult thing is, as we said, you know, sick cat looks like sick cat. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So in terms of the main causes, viral versus other, it can be really difficult to differentiate them. And you kind of alluded that to that a little bit in terms of whether there are oral ulcers or not. Did you want to kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, well, we can certainly think about, you know, hundreds of different minute subtypes and presentations Mm -hmm. and things. I think, you know, in general, we can group these cats into a a finite set of presentations. And, you know, some of them are quite unique and obvious. You know, the Khaleesi jumps to mind, you know, your isolated Khaleesi cat probably doesn't have much sneezing, probably has very little eye involvement, you know, but they've got a fever, they've got oral ulcers, they're drooling, maybe they've got some joint pain. And, you know, we, we call that upper resp, but really it's it's radically different from most of our other upper respiratory presentations. Yeah. Um, when we kind of separate that out, and I mean, you can certainly see that with other conditions. Um, you know, we can also separate out maybe like our, our ocular chlamydiosis, mm-hmm. you know, chlamydia or chlamydophila, depending on what day of the week it is. But, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, which again has a fairly textbook presentation, generally just the eyes involved, not much sneezing, not much fever, quite severe conjunctivitis, often Mm -hmm. unilateral, sometimes bilateral, but again, a fairly unique presentation, which we may call upper resp, but really doesn't fit in with your your rest of your classic ones. You know, then we get into that kind of viral to bacterial upper respiratory infection that I think is where we group the majority of these cats, which, Mm -hmm. you know, might involve the eyes, might not, usually has some degree of sneezing, maybe not, some degree of discharge, maybe not. They might be feeling sick, they might be feeling okay. And I think that's where we often, you know, kind of struggle. And that's the one where we're usually thinking about when we just say feline upper respiratory tract infection or, you know, URTI. Um, And I guess, you know, in my mind, all of these cats have herpes. Um, And, you know, I don't really need more evidence than the fact that they have an upper respiratory tract infection. You know, it's just it's so incredibly common among cats that realistically, I just assume there's herpes. And then the question is, what else is going on there? Um, And the ones who are just herpetic, who, who don't have much else going on, probably aren't very sick. You know, those are the ones who are still bright and happy. They're eating, they're sneezing. Maybe they've got some discharge, but it's clear. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe there's ocular involvement. And often that's the worst part of it is the, you know, kind of, we think about a classic dendritic ulcer, but it doesn't need to be dendritic, just, Mm -hmm. you know, some kind of ocular disease, ulceration, sneezing, non-productive. If they sneeze on a wall, there's no boogers on the wall after, (laughs) you know, there's no pussy discharge from the nose. And, you know, those are the viral cats who are are usually pretty fine. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then when we get into the bacterial infections is usually secondary to the underlying virus. Um, 
And so, you know, they'll have the herpes, but then that will cause some damage or, you know, weakening of the localized immune system. And then we get all of the other pathogens, your um, mycoplasma and chlamydia and staph and strep and pasturella and everything like that moving on top of it. And those are the ones who start seeing pussy discharge. You know, they'll have kind of purulent discharge from the nose. If they sneeze on the wall, there will be chunks on the wall. They yeah. might have a fever. Herpetic cats can have a fever, but, you know, they're like the... 39.7 fever, yeah. not like the 41 yeah. fever. Um, you know, the, the bacterial ones will often be sicker. They won't be eating. You know, they, they'll be the ones that are more kind of clinically affected. And and honestly, that's usually the extent of my diagnostics for, for differentiating viral versus bacterial is, is those kind of criteria. And, um, you know, a lot of this, I think, um, is summarized quite well in the um, the ISCADE guidelines on, on treatment of respiratory infections, which goes into a lot of detail on, you know, pyothorax and pneumonia and things. But there is a, a very nice feline upper respiratory section. And, you know, I kind of base my clinical judgment largely on that. But I think it's a practical set of guidelines there, too, where really I'm looking at, you know, does this animal have purulent nasal discharge? Yeah. Do they have a fever? Have they like lost their appetite? Are they acting systemically unwell? You know, and those are the criteria that are going to tell me that this animal has a bacterial rather than just a viral infection. I don't need all of them. I mean, purulent discharge by itself is probably enough. Yeah. Um, but those are the kind of things I'm looking for to tell me that this animal is moved on from just herpes to, to something else. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. And then the guidelines you're talking about are ISCAID. So that's I S C A I D. Yeah. I forget what International the International Society <laughs> for Companion Animal Infectious Disease. Ooh, there you go. Oh, Thank yeah, you. Fancy. Their guidelines are excellent. Yep, and um, they are free. The they're open access, so yeah. you can sign on anywhere. Yeah, yeah, they're great urinary ones as well. Definitely. Yeah. And respiratory dogs. But yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, so if anybody wants a, that practical list, that's a really good source. So then. Um, if you see a cat who you feel does have a bacterial component, mm. what do you generally reach for in terms of an antimicrobial? I mean, so doxycycline should probably be our first line for mm -hmm. the majority of these animals. Um, and I'm not saying it's the only antibiotic you can ever use in them. You know, certainly there are situations where it's, it's not acceptable or they don't tolerate it or, you know, whatever else. Um, mm -hmm. And people have certainly thrown clavamox, clavamox variants at these guys, and they often will work. Um, it's just that the doxycycline is better for, for a couple reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, one is that the doxy covers your, your atypicals, um, which are often playing a big role in this. And so mm -hmm. your mycoplasma felis, your chlamydophila, chlamydia, even bordetella, which, you know, is susceptible to clavamox, but more susceptible to doxy. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, you get those atypicals a little bit better with the, the doxycycline. Um, and then as well, we, we don't really have as much general concern with the induction of doxycycline resistance. It's mm -hmm. not an antimicrobial that has a, a high ability to easily generate resistance and then it doesn't have a lot of cross resistance if you're resistant to doxycycline you're probably just resistant to the tetracyclines yeah, whereas when we start throwing clavamox at these guys you know then we start worrying about broad spectrum you know anti-penicillin resistance beta-lactam resistance you know your ESBLs all those kinds of things and you know remembering that when we're giving these guys antimicrobials we're not just treating the nose and mm -hmm. so you know the animal who gets clavamox for the nasal infection might end up with a you know, antibiotic resistant E. coli in their gut, which, yeah. which comes back to cause a problem later on. Yeah. And so I think both from the perspective of picking the antimicrobial with a narrower spectrum that's going to cover, you know, the things we want and not induce resistance in the things we don't, 
as well as covering all of the things we want, you know, doxycycline is probably the best option. Yeah, I agree completely. And then, of course, there are some concerns with doxycycline in cats and making sure they swallow it properly. I mean, I almost always use a compounded liquid. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. The tablets it, are just, they're chalky. It, it's exactly. Just, it's yeah. difficult. And I, I agree, you know, I'm always worried with them. You know, you're quartering a hundred mg tablet yeah. and there's definitely exposure. It's sharp, like yeah. it can't be pleasant. Um, but I mean, it's just so easy to get compounded liquids. It's, yeah. Absolutely. They're my go-to. Yeah, we generally do that too. Yeah. The chicken flavor is the most popular, I think. There, I don't yeah. know what you think, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess um, my big thing has been, and I don't know if this is just a personal anecdote, but uh, the oil-based ones I've found have not been as well tolerated. I know you can get it as both an oil and as an aqueous solution. Mm -hmm. I find the aqueous solution goes down fine, and usually when people tell me, oh, I hate the liquid doxycycline, they vomit it up, they spit it up, it's because they're using the oil base, and I just find they don't tolerate that as well. I think you're right, yeah. and uh, I think the, the oil base has a longer shelf life, but we really actually don't need it to last longer than the course of action exactly. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. I like the, the aqueous one as well. Yeah. So. And I'm usually treating 10 days, you know, maybe yeah. 14, but, but usually 10. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair. Thank you. Oh, that sounds really good to me. It's very similar to what we generally do here as well. Nice when we agree. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned that you make your diagnosis, whether there's a bacterial or alternate component, mostly based on clinical signs, which I totally agree with. Of course, there are multiple PCR tests available these days where you can um, theoretically at least uh, test them for things like herpes, mycoplasma, that sort of thing. Um, do you have some comments about those tests for me? I mean, I think, you know, we can look at it two ways in terms of like the, the quality of the test. One mm -hmm. is, you know, how good is the test at actually telling us what's there? And the other one is what I'm going to do with that information. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, there's limitations both ways. I think the PCR tests are probably quite good at telling us what is there, assuming we're sampling the right area. And, you know, that's a bit difficult because I think, you know, swabbing a booger off a table is probably not sufficient. No. Trying to get a PCR swab far enough back into a cat's nose to get a representative sample of what's going on in there, I don't know, is always the easiest thing to do, especially if you're not, you know, heavily sedating that animal. And, yeah. you know, generally I don't want to have to heavily sedate a cat for a diagnostic test if I can help it. No. Um, but I mean, even if we make the assumption that we have a sample that is completely representative of, of the population there, I guess the question is, do I care? And yeah. often the answer is no. Um, again, I'm assuming they have herpes. Mm -hmm. You know, if they come back negative for herpes, my assumption is just that I didn't get a good enough sample <laughs> rather than that they don't actually have herpes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Khaleesi, I'm making that call based on the oral ulcers. If yeah. it comes back negative for Khaleesi and there's oral ulcers, again, I don't believe it. If it comes back positive for Khaleesi um, and there are no ulcers, then I guess I question whether it's relevant or if it's yeah. just a cat who's, who's carrying it. And, yeah. You know, then for the other things, again, mycoplasma, yeah. If it's positive, I don't know if that's the cause of disease or if it's just commensal and hanging out there. And yeah. again, if it's negative, I'm probably going to be treating for it anyway. And so I guess, you know, I just I don't know that it ever really changes my diagnostic plan. I certainly can come up with situations where it could. I'm not saying it's a, you know, hands down test I would never recommend. I mm -hmm. think I can probably come up with a convoluted situation, you know, where it would be useful. And, you know, that's that's great that it exists for that. Yeah. But, but ultimately, it would be a pretty rare occurrence that it would actually change what I do. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. Often we have students coming in who are aware the tests exist and they want to make a specific diagnosis, which of course is commendable. But yeah, I, I don't think that we need to be testing every cat no, uh, who no. comes in with respiratory disease either. So that's great. Okay, perfect. 
So let's talk a little bit more about treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, how about do you, what do you think about other um, treatment modalities? Things like famcyclovir can be used, of course, if you have a really sick herpes cat. Are, what situations, or if any, do you think that uh, you would recommend something like that? Yeah, the, the famcyclovir is a bit tricky because I think it's something where there there is good evidence for its use as an antiherpetic. You know, mm-hmm. it definitely does kill herpes virus. Yes. The question again comes down to how often is herpes virus necessary to treat um, mm-hmm. because in the animals who are just herpetic you know who don't have those signs of, of fever and lethargy and loss of appetite who are just kind of walking about minding their own business eating with a bit of a sneeze I would argue we probably don't need to treat those at all Agreed. you know it's it's just like me or you if I'm walking around in December with a little bit of a you know, I mean I guess recent years excluded <laughs> um, of course generally if I'm walking around with a little bit of a sneeze but still going about my day I don't go to the doctor and I don't get treated for it yeah. right and if I asked for a treatment for the rhinovirus I've got they'd look at me like I'm crazy and, yeah. you know I think the same is true with these cats the majority of them probably don't need treatment and then the ones who are really sick I mean, realistically, they're probably really sick because of the secondary bacterial infection, not because of the herpes. Um, You know, there have been situations where it's been investigated and, you know, cats coming into a shelter where they're likely to be exposed to it or likely to be stressed and, you know, treating them with large single doses or multiple doses and hasn't really shown a lot of efficacy in those situations, Mm. unfortunately. Um, You know, again, I think there are situations I use it, you know, maybe in that cat who's actually, you know, needing to be hospitalized for their respiratory infection, who maybe has some comorbidities. It's an old kidney cat who now has an upper rasp. You know, the ones who are really quite sick and I'm very worried. Maybe I'll add in some femcyclovir or, you know, I guess in my situation, um, you know, in internal medicine where I'm dealing with a lot of animals on immunosuppressives, um, you know, for their, their autoimmune diseases or things like that. You know, sometimes we do have these cats who just can't kick an infection because, you know, they've got IMHA and they're on three immunosuppressives. And, you know, in those guys, I might use it just because I don't feel like they have the ability to clear it themselves. And, you know, normally sneezing for a week, I don't care about. Yeah. Sneezing for three months, you know, that becomes a problem. Yeah. Well, so again, I think sense. there's there's limited situations for utility. I think it's a fine drug. I just don't think it's something I would reach for on a regular basis. Yeah, agreed. I can't think of actually when I've used it for this. So yeah, yeah um, I guess one exception may be ocular issues. Um, yeah. It is famciclovir is a pro drug. It's metabolized to pencyclovir. Pencyclovir reaches quite high tear film concentrations, and so you know. Usually we would just use a topical antiherpetic, but if yep. you wanted to use oral famcyclovir, um, you know, for a herpetic ulcer, where I think those do warrant therapy because, for you sure. know, an ulcer could lose the eye, yeah. um, th- that may be a reasonable option. Um, and I guess one other comment on it is, you know, there's a huge dosing range published mm. ranging from like 20 migs twice a day to 90 migs three times a day, uh, migs per kg yep. three times a day. And really most of the data shows you have to be at the higher end for it to do anything. Oh, um, and so really getting closer to that, like, um, you know, 90 migs per kg three times a day to, to really have efficacy. And, you know, that can get uh, expensive, but at least trying to push to the higher end, you know, 125 migs twice a day is probably not going to do it. 253 times, probably better for most cats. Okay, good to know. Yeah, I've mostly used the uh, topical antivirals mm-hmm. for yeah, sure no, for definitely. ulcers. Although yeah. I have to say, I haven't seen a whole lot of dendritic ulcers, although I have seen, of course, plenty of upper respiratory cats. Yeah. What do you think? Do I, do you see, are you seeing a lot of that? Or No, I think that, you know, well, the dendritic ulcer is the classic herpetic ulcer. Yes. You know, certainly, again, if I've got a cat 
with chronic conjunctivitis, I assume that herpes is playing a role there. That's um, and just not all of the ulcers happen to be dendritic. You know, they can make any kind of ulcer. It's just the dendritic one is the classic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A dendritic ulcer has sort of a, a tree branching appearance. It's a really interesting uh, pattern that it makes on the cornea that doesn't look like a normal um, single ulcer. But as you're saying, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be that pattern. No, exactly. Yeah. Mm, okay, perfect. Okay. And then what about the big question around lysine, of course? Yeah. I mean, I guess in my mind, there isn't a big question. I think lysine is a great drug to make it feel like you're doing something um, and and not much else. Okay. Um, I think lysine often gets misunderstood. I will have a lot of clients come into me in various things and say, oh yeah, he's on an immune booster and, you know, he's on a a Mm. supplement to help him, you know, clear his infections and, you know, they'll use it for other disease. Really lysine's theoretical utility is, is really quite herpes specific. Yes. And I think if you do have that isolated situation, you know, where we take a cat who has not previously been exposed or is, is in remission from their herpes, treat them with fairly high dose lysine prior to them flaring up, there is some evidence it will decrease the severity and length of time of, of that flare up. The issue is that that's not a realistic situation the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. Usually we're taking more of a, a reactive approach and treating animals who already have clinical signs. You know, and in that scenario, there's there's quite good evidence that it doesn't really do anything. Um, that really you're past that kind of rapid replication phase of the virus. And really there isn't a lot of utility. Um, you know, the situation where, again, I could imagine there may be utility would be more in that kind of, you know, chronic upper respiratory cat who keeps on having recurrent infections and you're kind of using it as a a preventative. Again, though, in that situation, usually there's something more than just the herpes causing it. You know, maybe herpes was the initial triggering factor, but now they've got chronic rhinitis. You know, now they've got some changes to their turbinate structure. There's something else going on that's that's triggering this. And so I just think, you know, ideally for it to work, we should probably start using it before a cat ever has any signs of upper respiratory <laughs> infection. And it's just not a practical thing. So it's it's not a tool I use very often, but I mean... I don't fight people who are on it. If they feel like it's working, it's probably a placebo, but all the power to you. No, that's fair. I have to say, I will use it sometimes if I have a cat who has repeated flare-ups but is clinically normal in between and let's say they seem to flare with stress for example again whether i'm just comforting myself that i'm doing something yeah, and it's hard, hard to say to right, know, right? And, you know but i guess i worry a little bit about you know if it's one of like the treats that the cats are just taking mm-hmm. happily sure but I, I do wonder about compliance in those situations too you know True. getting in order to medicate a healthy cat on a daily basis is not always you know something especially when they don't see yeah. direct results right yeah no that's fair enough and you wouldn't want to stress the cat trying to administer the license well, exactly <laughs> right and you're back that, to square one yeah exactly. you know as a treat sure but it's an expensive treat and really needs to be a thousand milligrams for it to have any effect so yeah. you know those 500 milligram ones again two of those a day it adds up yeah absolutely no and yeah i think i would be pretty poor at doing that for my own cat yeah, in same. terms of remember to give it every day so yeah that's fair Okay, well, I thought, what if we chat about just a couple of sort of case examples, just to kind of go through a few different aspects of what we've said. Um, I don't know if you want to sort of suggest a case or... Um, oh, if you've got I've some, got, I think that's yeah, excellent. Yeah, of ex- for sure. Of kind of examples. So what if you have like the classic sort of 10-ish week old kitten adopt a week ago from the shelter and now has lots of sneezing, mucopurulent nasal discharge on the wall, conjunctivitis, inappetence, less energetic than normal. You know, what kind of approach would you take to this poor kitten? Yeah. So, I mean, just from that description, you know, this kitten has a bacterial 
component, right? Yeah. It's it's sick. It's got the purulent discharge. It's sneezing on the wall. We can see it. You know, there's something bacterial here. Um, I think, you know, basic supportive care for, for any of these guys, you know, some subcutaneous fluids, um, maybe some serenia, whatever we need to do to kind of get them feeling a, a little bit better in terms of, you know, treating any nausea, deworming them, all those kind of nonspecific yeah. things. But, you know, focusing directly on the, the respiratory infection, I would have little hesitation to use doxycycline in that scenario. Um, you know, you'll definitely have the argument of tetracyclines in a young animal and the concerns for it staining teeth and, you know, possible cartilage issues and all of that. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty dramatically overblown. Um, in the non kind of non doxycycline, the more water soluble and less lipid soluble tetracyclines, mm -hmm. like the oxytets and things, definitely the tooth staining is more of an issue. If it happens in doxycycline, it happens pretty uncommonly. Um, mm -hmm. and so I'd have pretty, low concerns um using it in this kitten um if you really you know said I, i'm very concerned about this in a young kitten i i won't fight you on the clavimox there but uh no, I, I would personally put them on doxycycline um you know if you bump them up to a, a 16 to 20 week old kitten i'd probably give them a bit of an NSAID as well um just because i think these guys you know they're sore they're inflamed if i've got a cold i take an NSAID um the 10 week old i'd be a little bit more hesitant to jump to that unless maybe we had a really high fever or something i needed to dramatically intervene with but okay. uh you know i think in that guy just kind of doxycycline some sub fluids you know whatever else makes you happy some b vitamins whatever you want to do to, to <laughs> get them feeling better yeah absolutely maybe humidity making sure people are you know washing their little face and keeping them clean and hand feeding some like canned food mm -hmm. possibly warming up the food while sticking their finger in the food to make sure it's not too hot yeah definitely you know, all that sort of thing the nice little support if we've got types of significant enough conjunctivitis i'd probably toss some topramycin drops in there um yeah, for sure. you know i don't know that if there was an ulcer sure i'd, I'd add an antiherpetic drop if there's no ulcer i probably wouldn't um and then for these ones who are really stuffy and snorty where you're picking their nose and they're just having a lot of trouble breathing i think a drop of something in the nose can be helpful. Honestly, I don't think it matters what it is. <laughs> what I think is, saline yeah. probably works as well as anything just to kind of, you know, loosen up that mucus a little bit and help them breathe a little bit better. I've put tobramycin in there and get a little bit of, you know, topical antibiotic activity. I don't know whether that's helping or not. People have done serenia drops. There's really absolutely no data that that helps at all but, but I sure that. as an anti-inflammatory you mean or i, I yeah i, I mean thought, why serenia but we can get down to a bit of an aside oh, with no. that but uh <laughs> yeah i mean serenia is a great drug i absolutely love serenia i yes. think it's one of the the most amazing drugs as an anti-nauseant yes and i think we can really get into tangents with serenia in terms of you know its use as an anti-inflammatory and an anti-cough and an anti-asthmatic and all of these kinds of things and maybe there's a little bit of data on the cough suppression but, but for most of those purposes like it, it just doesn't do anything like no. yes there's a theoretical mechanism by which it could be anti-inflammatory with its substance p inhibition but it just hasn't panned out um, but that's people's thought is that hey it's anti-inflammatory we'll put it in the nose we'll treat the inflammation mm -hmm. and yes they they do get better with serenia drops in the nose but <laughs> i think they also get better with saline drops in the nose and ultimately i just think it's it's you know like a, a neti pot or whatever those yep. tea kettle things are for people yes. but uh, it's the same idea right you're just putting some fluid up there just kind of trying to loosen things up a little bit and i think saline probably works as well as anything else fantastic it's probably questionable how much actually goes in as well so. well for yeah. sure yeah yeah, yeah. No, 
that sounds really good. Okay. Okay. And then, okay, so that's it for our kind of small kitten. Depending on the age, we may or may not add an NSAID in, but that sounds great for supportive care. Okay. And then how about if we get a little bit of an older cat? So let's say we've had, we have like a four-year-old domestic short hair cat who's always kind of had um, these flare-ups of sneezing, ocular discharge when he seems to be stressed. And maybe the family is preparing a move and they know that this is likely to set off what they think is a respiratory outbreak for the cat. I've mm-hmm. definitely had clients come in with this kind of yeah. concern before. Um, and so they want to know, okay, what can they do to try to avoid a flare up of, of herpes and or secondary issues? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, again, we can focus a lot on the herpes yeah. here and we can say, you know, oh, well, we'll put them on lysine ahead of time. Maybe we'll do some famciclovir beforehand. That's, that's all great. And, you know, I don't have an objection to that. But I think what you really mentioned there is that this isn't a random, unpredictable flare-up of herpes. This is stress, right? And ultimately, that's the part that I think we need to mitigate here because that's what's setting this off. And, you know, you could move this over to a talk about FIC and, you know, have the exact same discussion. You know, you could move it over to, you know, defecation outside the litter box or stress colitis, maybe more of a dog thing. But but you could talk about this topic with with a lot of different things. And, you know, it's the same thing here is that really what we're trying to do is mitigate the stress aspect. And so, you know, that's whatever cocktail of stress mitigation you you want to use you know i think you know things like fell away of whatever flavor is the most popular one <laughs> nowadays yeah. um you know if you're really concerned this animal is is very worked up you know a short course of like a fluoxetine or something like that if it's more of a just a couple of days maybe some gabapentin trazodone if that's what you like um you know you can look at Anxetane or zilkine or calm or stress or you know any of those diets or supplements or things like that and you know just whatever we can to try and make this transition as easy for this cat as possible and I think that's probably the main focus and probably going to go a lot further you know not just for the upper rest but for the, the general health of the cat because you know maybe this cat who's obviously got some stress issues is going to get FIC and block or something like that and so <laughs> I think mitigating the stress is probably the priority and you know then the virus is just just kind of a symptom of that. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Okay, that sounds perfect. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for all that information about feline upper respiratory uh, infections. I know we get lots of questions about this all the time, and mm-hmm. so I really appreciate you discussing it with me. So Yeah, definitely. I thought I'd ask you just a couple more questions. If for that's sure. Okay. More yeah. about you this time. Oh, so fun. I wanted to know, do you have a favorite breed of cat? Oh. I mean, you can't, it's hard to pick just one, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I most of my, I've got six kitties at home, and most of them are just domestic cats. Yeah. Um, I, I've always had a, a fondness for like the, the tiny breeds i like abyssinians mm-hmm. rexes those kinds of things i like the the little ones yeah me too abyssinians their, their colors just so oh, fascinating too yeah. i love those yeah absolutely and then i wondered too like as an internist what do you have a, like a favorite medical condition or a condition <laughs> that you think is the most interesting or that you love to treat for some reason i just wonder kind of what really what you're really excited about in terms yeah. of medical conditions in I, cats i mean my my interest has been like my research and most of my my stuff is largely in hematologic um disease so those kind of um you know bone marrow diseases um precursor imhas coagulopathies uh, the, the hematologic side of things has been where i've done a lot of my my focus Excellent. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, that's what your research is based on, you were saying as well. I think you're working it's, on a yeah, project now. Yeah, I could put a girl research in kitties. Yeah. yeah. Great. 
Good for you. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's you're been very welcome. a lot of fun to talk about this with you. Oh, definitely. And uh, I really appreciate it. We'll have to have you come back for another cat topic oh, anytime. sometime. So I know you always love to talk about cats. So thank you. For sure. So thanks everyone for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Vet Sessions. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts or any feedback for us, then please email us at vetsessions at hotmail.com. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye.